Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. This is the Economic and Business History Channel of the New Books Network. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, a host in this channel. I want to mention here a quick announcement, announcement and this is that we just launched New Books Network in Español, where you will be able to listen to authors speaking about the recent publications in Spanish. The URL is the same for the new uh, as for the NBN, but with ES after the dash. Today, I have the pleasure to meet and talk to Dr. Susan Spellman, Associate Professor of History at Miami Univer- University in Ohio. Dr. Spellman specializes in the history of capitalism, the history of consumerism, and business history. Spellman is the author of Cornering the Market, Independent Grocers and Innovation in American Small Business, published first in 2016 and last year again by Oxford University Press. This book tells the story, the history of how America's retail went from grog shops to established and uh, uh, to established grocery stores between the late 1860s to the beginning of the 20th century when chain and self-service stores began to dominate the business of selling groceries. Spellman argues that uh, it's in this period and with independent grocers where we find the beginning of modern retailing uh, with technology and managerial methods that were geared to control and systematize how people in America sold and bought groceries. So rather than looking at the great big names such as the A&P, company, one should go back in time to the third quarter of the 19th century to find the first grocers and machine innovators and manufacturers involved in the organization and modernization of selling. Cornering the Market has five chapters organized chronologically, but also thematically in a way, and it is a must for classes uh, such as the history of American capitalism or uh, perhaps 19th century consumer cultures. Dr. Spellman, welcome. 
Thank you. And thank you for the invitation to speak. I'm so glad you're here. Um, first, I want to know a bit more about you before and besides the book. Uh, what is your background? Whatever you would want to share with us um, about your personal background that is relevant to how you came to U.S. business history. What did you study? Oh, great. Um, well, thank you again for the opportunity. Um, I, I kind of stumbled into business history, frankly, um, and, and my background is perhaps a little unique, although less unique, I think, these days uh, than some other scholars. Uh, when I finished high school, um, which is, you know, the 12th grade here in the United States, I uh, decided I wasn't ready for college, didn't want to go. And so actually started working in the grocery business uh, for six years doing kind of every job conceivable, which, as you can imagine, is going to have a, an important um, influence on the direction of my scholarship in future years. Uh, but after working in the grocery business for six years, I decided I was ready to try college. Um, and when I finished my undergraduate degree, I took a, um, a summer internship at a, uh, a history of technology museum, if you will, car collection. They were putting together a, a new museum on uh, industry in the Cleveland area. Unfortunately, it never came to fruition, but it gave me the opportunity to um, do a little independent research in industrialization and various aspects of transportation, which is a long-winded way to say this is how I got into business history, kind of through the, uh, the back end of transportation. I had done some work for the museum, um, and in my research, I discovered uh, gas stations and women's influence on gas stations in the 1920s. Uh, and wrote a master's thesis on that when I decided to continue my education. Uh, and so that tackled, you know, kind of the, the business side of it. But even then, I didn't know that business history as a field existed, even as a master's student. Um, and subsequent to that, I decided to pursue the PhD. Uh, and when it came time to think about, you know, what kind of uh, dissertation I wanted to write, I was at that point familiar and aware of business history as a field. Uh, history of capitalism as a you know kind of collective concept was beginning to emerge at that moment as well, uh, and I had recalled my days in the grocery business and combined that with the reading I was doing as a graduate student in business and a little bit in economic history, and in doing that reading, I was I was rather dismayed, if you will, about the way that. Um, you know, the focus on big industry, um, big business was almost exclusive. There were a couple of people kind of dabbling around the edges of small business. And um, and as I read deeper into you know, the grocery trade and how it was being characterized, as you pointed out, a lot of the focus was on companies like AMP and, you know, big retail uh, and having worked in the trade, I thought, well, you know, while I worked for a chain store, a large chain that was based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the time, um, my experiences working in that grocery store, while I was clearly embedded in, you know, kind of the big business chain aspect of a supermarket chain, there was still a little, I would say a lot, frankly, of that kind of small 
business aspect, the the kind of the intimacy of working um, with customers and you're in you know, seeing the same people day after day. I worked the cash register. I worked, you know, as a stock clerk, I worked all of these different parts of the grocery store and would see the same people and develop, you know, kind of a familiarity with them. And so when it came time to think about, you know, writing a dissertation, which obviously became the book, I recall those moments and thought, you know, why aren't we thinking more about the ways in which, you know, the kind of the, the small and familiar intersect with the big uh, and the, the corporate, um, because it's not as clearly divided, if you will, as some uh, historians would like to make out. And so that's kind of, you know, a, a long winded way to, to, to get into the book topic and how it came about. But I think in that you can see um, some of the influences that came through in, in actually um, researching this book and putting it together and, and the direction I wanted to take with it. Um, and not, you know, necessarily, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a, a strict business history, because I think uh, you'll see elements of social history and cultural history. There's uh, a lot of different components in that. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy I did ask you for your personal background, because I, I thought of it while right while reading your book, I thought um, that 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 closeness to the business kind of came through in your book and that's really important um i think you don't always see that um <laughs> and especially in you know in in business history when sometimes you know we study big business um we don't uh that kind of uh, you know familiarity with the trade um is really crucial, I think. And it did came out, uh, in, in your, you know, while reading your book. And so that's, that's great. So then let's go how, um, so how did you structure the book? Uh, how did you, you know, kind of focus um, the topic of the book while uh, doing your doctorate and, and so forth? But also, I hope you can also mention a little bit more about uh, maybe the business history conference and and you know and your engagement with some of its members, which you uh, mentioned actually in your acknowledgments. And I, and of course you and I, you know, uh, we are very you know we're members of the business history conference, and and mm-hmm. many of the names in your acknowledgments were very familiar to me as well. Um, <laughs> So I'm very interested in, in knowing, you know, how your trajectory with the organization came about. So, yeah, that's interesting. So we'll start with the, the, the BHC first. Um, and so it, it just happened that the, the conference and I can't, uh, you know, I'm going to date myself. I don't recall the year exactly. The conference was being held in Cleveland um, several, many, many years ago while I was still in the PhD program and just getting started. And I had taken a, a, graduate student colleague with me to um, the BHC uh, because I thought, well, the work I'm doing fits there. That sounds like where my work belongs. Um, and just turned up in Cleveland and happened to be close to, you know, where I was uh, in graduate school at Carnegie Mellon, um, took the two hour drive and just out of sheer luck uh, was standing in a hall uh, listening to, I believe it was the keynote address. Uh, I was standing room only. The, the room that was booked was uh, tiny, if you will. But And so I was standing out in the hall with my friend and standing next to a gentleman who I didn't know, didn't recognize, um, and uh, just 
struck up a conversation uh, with him, and it turned out it was Ken Lepartito. Uh, and Ken was working on issues of surveillance at the time. I was writing at that moment um, about cash registers, which is clearly you know a surveillance technology. Uh, that is used in the business. Uh, and, and, you know, I have a chapter, obviously, about that in the book. Um, and, and and just I'll give a shout out to Ken and say he was delightful and helpful and supportive. And um, from there, it just felt like um, the Business History Conference really was a great home, not just, you know, for um, my particular interests, but also for, you know, soliciting and getting the kind of feedback um, that I was really needing on the book. And so was lucky enough, again, to participate by delivering papers at several conferences um, and connecting with, you know, people who were, had taken a really deep vested interest in it. As a graduate student, I participated in the, um, the dissertation colloquium, which has undergone a number of different name changes. It was under a different name when I did it. It was the Newcomen uh, at that point. Uh, and being part of that process met, again, some just amazing scholars who were so thoughtful um, and provided really just deep um, and, and important feedback as I was shaping the dissertation again that eventually became the book. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure to continue that relationship um, with the BHC over the years. Um, it's been tougher, you know, as you get more in, intertwined with uh, academia and you know, I t- I'm taking on administrative roles now. So it's, it's harder to kind of make those kind of scholarly connections that you always want to um, try to maintain. But, um, you know, I, I've been lucky in, in developing that. Um, Vicki Howard, uh, who, again, is uh, in retail history, has been incredibly supportive, connected me with um, people in Europe like John Stobart, who have given me opportunities to uh right uh, for different collaborative projects and the like. So um, the BHC has been an incredibly fruitful connection for me uh, and my work and uh, very supportive in that regard. And I've appreciated that immensely. Fantastic. Um, can you, so the, let's go into the big um, thesis of your book. And uh, in your introductions, you mentioned a few terms like bigness, efficiency, modern, uh, which have been common in defining late 19th century, I guess, big American industrialization, inventions, abundance, um, but not a small corner stores, right? Um, these are not usually mentioned. And in fact, um, they have this, you also talk about this aura of vintageness and now, and so these cultural stereotypes that even make this even harder to to mention them and to have them to consider a small business as part of, of this history. Um, so, so in fact, you argue the opposite, that to create the corner store, independent grocers needed to go through important changes in terms of technology and organization of innovation and store management, um, and that they actually changed uh, the American selling trade in the 1890s, uh, by the 1890s. Can you, can you talk a little bit about your big argument? Yeah. So, you know, going back to doing a lot of, you know, the, the historiographical reading in, in business in, in, you know, that cover the 19th century. And, and you know, I, I suspect many listeners will, will 
be familiar with the idea that, you know, the focus is on those big organizations, those big corporations, because they're impressive. They're new at the end of the 19th century, 1875 to 1900. It, you know, those big uh, organizations, railroads, steelworks, et cetera, they come into to play and they absolutely change the landscape of um, business and the economy. You can't argue against that. Um, but one of the things that I was um, troubled by was that while it's it's not inaccurate to talk about bigness and efficiency as kind of hallmarks and important concepts with regard to late 19th century developments, um, historians writing in the 20th and 21st century, it seemed to me we're trying to apply those same um, kind of markers, those same measures of bigness and efficiency in evaluating small business. And when you do that, small business, particularly in the 19th century, is always going to come up short. They're going to end up on the short end of the stick there. You can't possibly use a measure of bigness and efficiency and expect to get any kind of positive um, result and looking at, you know, your small mom and pop corner grocer. And so I thought, you know, one of the things that maybe we needed to do and that I wanted to do in particular was to shift the, the um, lens of evaluation. In other words, rather than using bigness and efficiency to gauge the, you know, um, innovativeness, the, the, the significance uh, of small business, why don't we look at business practices instead? Um, and this is what I decided to do. And that's, you know, really, you know, making that little, well, I would argue big shift by looking at business practices, then you get a different portrait of small business, the small mom and pop person who, you know, at the end of the 19th century is wrestling with all of the very same things that, you know, the big businesses are dealing with, the railroads, the steelworks, et cetera. Mom and pop are wrestling with all of those same forces, all of those same ideas. They're just doing it, A, on a different scale, and B, trying to figure out um, how for themselves they can um, you know, create some sense of um, you know, movement forward. I hate to use the word progress, um, so, but movement forward, if you will. And so, you know, um, when you look at mom and pop at the end of the 19th century, the small corner grocer, the independent person, you know, they're having to figure out how do we use counting, uh, um, accounting measures, you know, cost accounting. Businesses are doing that, but mom and pop are doing it too. They're trying to figure out how can we make better use of ledgers? How can we take, um, you know, information that we're getting out of our cash register and use it for our um, purposes to improve the, um, you know, way our particular operation works. How can we use display cases? You know, those are a technology of sort. Uh, how can we use, you know, show windows to entice more customers in? How can we you know, improve the organization of the inside of our shop to entice customers in and to buy more. These are, you know, all things that um, are working alongside of the transformations that are taking place in big business. 
small businesses are having to wrestle with those same forces and they're creating their own solutions that in many ways look similar to and mirror what's happening in biz, big business. But if you turn away from, you know, bigness and efficiency and you start to look at practice, then you get a very different portrait of how the corner grocer, how independent businessmen, small businessmen are not only making a contribution, but also uh, a contribution to the economy, if you will, but also making a contribution to the way business as a practice develops throughout the 19th century. One issue I thought was really interesting and important was this um, connection to uh, or the relation with um, in the transition from grog shops to to corner stores, uh, this relation with reformers movement uh, towards the regulation of alcoholic consumption um, and the morality of these practices. Can you talk a little bit more about this religious connotation? Yeah. So I'll be honest, and that surprised me too when I was doing um, the research for the book. I kept coming up against um, ads that were coming out in the 1830s, 1840s, and the stores were being labeled as family groceries. And I thought, well, that's really weird terminology, if you will. I mean, if it's a grocery store, it's a grocery store. If it's a general store, it's a general. Why is it a family grocery? And so um, as I dug a little bit deeper, it was clear that they were using that terminology to um, uh, delineate between, you know, the kind of just the haphazard store that sold a little of everything. It's like, you know, the precursor to the general store. You could go in and kind of pick up whatever little bit thing, but also guess what? You could sit down and have a, a good stiff drink. Um, and you can have several good stiff drinks if you wanted to uh, in um, a grog shop. And so the grog shop was, you know, not just a place where you could get a drink, but you'd pick up little incidentals, some um, foodstuffs, et cetera, et cetera. It's, I mean, I guess one way to think about it would be it's not unlike a, you know, a like a convenience store, if you will, you know, where you, you go make your 40 ounce and you, you take it home to enjoy. Anyhow, um, but as the temperance movement obviously begins to grow, particularly 1830s and 40s, you see a lot of, um, obviously the women reformers who are leading that movement, um, trying to... Um, you know, make clear not only that they're not going to tolerate, you know, drunk husbands and, you know, going to the saloon and spending the paycheck and leaving themselves and their children as orphans, et cetera, but they're also not going to tolerate um, having to walk into a shop and be accosted by um, a drunk person at the, you know, at the, the, the counter. Um, and so, you know, and as much as our temperance reformers are cleaning up the saloons and cleaning up, you know, um, drinking over to excess in general, they're also, you know, they're on a you know crusade to clean up retail um, and make safe spaces for women to go shopping. Um, and so it is kind of an interesting, you know, it's one of those little um it gets play in the book, but, you know, I think it's one of those things that frankly could, you know, be teased out quite a bit more into something and more fully developed um, look at how the temperance movement was interacting with um, retail spaces in that way. I, I think it'd be a fascinating take. 
I agree. I agree. Uh, so let's go to back to independent grocers uh, more. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more about this idea of the control revolution, right? Which you mentioned mm-hmm. also in the introduction. Um, and, you know, and how how was the usual day of an independent grocer? What kind of, you know, um, before the cash register, what, what, with what kind of data did the gro- the independent grocers start in the morning? <laughs> what was the you know what were the things he registered or she? And maybe um, we maybe you can also talk about the same kind of routine, but for the traveling uh, salesmen and 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 how, how were traveling salesmen um, connected to independent grocers? Yeah. Okay. So. You know, one of the delights of this book, and, and in many ways, this is a book that really could only be, you know, kind of a dissertation book to some extent, um, because the research for it was um, not easy. Um, and this gets to my point of, you know, one of the reasons people don't write about, I think, small businesses as much as they might is that, um it's difficult to find sources and, you know, corporations have big archives. And so you go to the archive and you can spend, you know, six months in one place and you're good. This is a book that, you know, I had to go all kinds of places. And this gets to your point because as I was going to all these different archives and, you know, seeing what they had that were related to grocers, independent grocers, 19th century, I was amazed, frankly, at the number of ledgers that, you know, archives held that small historical societies held from, you know, local retailers from back in the day, there were so many ledgers. And if you were to believe, you know, kind of the, the history that had been written about these small stores before, you would think, well, these people didn't take, you know, they didn't keep uh, track of their accounts. They didn't, you know, keep any records. They just, you know, traded, um, you know, across the counter and stuff, the money in a boot that's nailed to the back wall. That's a a story I read about. Um, But one of the things, and and don't get me wrong, there were lots of people who were trading in that way. You will just stuff the money in the boot uh, and we'll go about our day. But, um, you know, a a small grocer who is interested in maintaining his or her business has to keep records. And they did keep records. And so in a typical day, you know, you'd come in, you'd open the shop um, and, you know, you'd make sure that everything was in its place. Uh, you would spend a lot of time, um, you know, totaling accounts, you know, going through the book work. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to come across a series of diaries that was kept over an 18 year period from a main grocer out in the middle of nowhere. And he detailed the day to day humdrum kind of, out. I came in, waited on X number of customers, took in X dollars in cash. He would record his cash. He would record, you know, how many um, eggs people brought in to trade. Um, he would, you know, sell those eggs for others on the market. He would, you know, talk about pricing his items. Um, and so again, another, you know, kind of fallacy of the 19th century small businessmen that they didn't put prices on things. Now, these guys were they had elaborate coding systems that they would put on prices so that they knew like how much money they had spent, what their costs were. In other words, you know, how much they could retail it for to make a profit because everything was kind of negotiable. And so they needed to know that information. 
And so, you know, these are guys and women who, you know, for the most part, kept very close tabs on their businesses. Because one of the things you have to keep in mind is that the vast majority of the trade is being run on credit. Um, and in order to run a successful credit business, even to run an unsuccessful credit business, um, you have to know how much you're crediting out and to whom. And so you have to keep track of that. Um, and so there were just, I kept coming across just hundreds and thousands of these ledgers um, that tell me that these are people who wanted useful information about how to run their businesses. Um, and then you transition into the cash register era. And, you know, as I write in the book about, and, and this is, again, one of these, I just have to pause for a moment and say, this is one of those moments in, you know, when you're a historian in, and you're in an archive and something absolutely amazing comes to you, you didn't know existed. Um, and the, the cash register ledger is one of those. And so I happened to be at the National Cash Register Archive uh, in Dayton, Ohio, and had been there for a couple of days. And the archivist comes up to me with this ledger, this big red ledger. And he's like, I don't know if this is of any interest to you, but I thought I'd bring it out. Um, and in that ledger, it was the very first uh, um, 3,000 cash registers that the National Cash Register Company sold between um, 1885 and 1886, the very first 300, with these incredible details about, you know, who was buying them, where they were going, uh, what kind of um, buttons they wanted on it in terms of the denominations, et cetera, et cetera. And so going through that ledger and realizing that the grocers who were buying these registers weren't just, you know, buying them stock and sticking them in their stores. No, no. They were working with National Cash Register Company to get special orders. You know, I want this key. Why? Because maybe I need to, you know, record more vegetable sales or something of that nature. Or I only need this number of keys on my register, or I want. You know. So this was telling me that even in the 1880s um, and, and forward, these were men and women who were using these machines to extract more useful data about their business operations. So it's it's not just you know uh, backwoodsy you know feet up on the stool and I'll stick my dirty finger in the pickle barrel and, you know, dish out stale crackers. These are men and women who were committed to, you know, not just running their businesses, but finding ways to improve their businesses based on data, you know, the hard data. And it was mm -hmm. fascinating. And so, and, you know, and you see this, as you said, you were the traveling salesman, you know, the, the perishable nature of groceries meant that our, you know, the traveling salesmen who were um, the link between wholesale grocers and all these little small retail outposts uh, across the country, um, they had to make sure that A, the items they were selling were good and of good quality because they had to go back again and again because perishable goods, it's not like it's a one sale, you know, like I think you mentioned Singer, you know, you sell one sewing machine to a customer and generally you're done, you know, unless you're, in, you know, in, in a big industry, I would imagine you're selling lots of machines over and over again. 
the, re- the the traveling grocery salesman, he's making a trip around every, you know, two, three, four weeks to visit the same people and again and again. And so he needs good information about not just the goods that he's selling, but the reliability of the customers that he's selling them to. They need to be credit worthy. And so one of the um, traveling salesmen I write about, um, Samuel Eisman, he, um, you know, had kind of a systematic way of finding out about the credit worthiness of the, the grocers that he was dealing with who were, you know, miles and miles away from the wholesaler he worked for. He would go visit banks to check on, you know, whether the grocers had good funding, whether they were delinquent. He would ask around town about their credit worthiness. In other words, he was doing some investigative reporting, if you will, and trying to Surveillance, find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love these people. If I, you know, send them a barrel of hams, uh, am I going to get the money back out of them? And so, you know, I think, again, this is probably one of the things that, um, was you know more prevalent in the book than I I'm I probably set out to think about was you know the way in which um, data and information was traded at these you know macro and micro levels you know so it, and I often think again that you know we characterize these small businessmen as just kind of you know flying by the seat of their pants but. I didn't find as much of that as I thought I might. I saw a lot more of, you know, kind of careful um, consideration. At least, you know, these are the people I'm, I'm seeing. That's not to say that there, of course, there aren't hundreds and thousands of these small guys who are just kind of winging it. And that's part of what it goes on. But it was interesting to me to see how much um, the information, the data, surveillance, you know, um, factored into um, the successful operation of their businesses. Yeah, I was the chapter on 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 NCR on the cash register is it's really important, and I think uh, when we talk now about information technology as a kind of recent advancement, right? Uh, I mean about um, computers or you know punch cards and things like that. But you, I mean, you demonstrate that to understand the the retail revolution we need to go back to the 19th century and to this to to these registers but also what really fascinated me was this idea of um of the manufacturer right we had seen ncr as a manufacturer and we and it probably was part of and i think it is part of histories of mass manufacturing and again the big business um but this relation with marketing, it's not, you know, is they are hand in hand. Manufacturing has to go with manu- with marketing and manufacturers need to know about the world of selling in this case. They need to be part of this, maybe even meetings with, with all these grocers and, um, and their um, trade journals and their um, all these networking um, spaces, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, you know, I, I point out it's there's no s- surprise that the the first you know grocery trade journal um, comes out in 1869. I mean, right at the beginning of like all of these major fundamental changes that are going on, um, not just in the grocery trade, but across you know business industry. Um, and you know, just trying to find ways to corral information, to share information, to 
you know, to work out some of the challenges that they're seeing, that they're facing. Like, well, what are you doing? Well, here's what I'm doing. And you get these kind of like, there's a little bit of how-to in there, but you also have this correspondence between, you know, grocers from, you know, across the country. Well, you know, here's how we do it at my shop and maybe it'll work for you there. Um, um, so that, that kind of exchange of information is really um, valuable, I think, as well. Absolutely. So in terms of architecture and to visualize selling more closely in the 1910s, can you talk a little bit more about what would be the difference between an independent um, grocery store and a chain uh, and the new chain and self-service stores that start to to appear in that time, at that time? Um, the window fronts and I was thinking some, I hope there is, there probably is a history, a business history of wallpaper, but your contribution to it is great. Um, How, you know, how the inventory of stores changed over time and why would consumers start to prefer chain stores or, or, or did they, I mean, chain stores rather than, than, you know, their, their local neighborhood uh, grocery store. Yeah. So um, your initial question is interesting um, in terms of the difference between an independent grocer and a chain in the 19 teens, Um, because one of the arguments I make, obviously, is that for the average consumer, they wouldn't have known the difference. Um, The stores resemble each other very much. Um, So if you were to, you know, and trust me, I've looked at a lot of pictures um, of of, uh, grocery stores from that time period. And you know, there are subtle cues um, in some cases where you can see that it's a chain um, varieties of store. But um, in general, you know, the stores are, you know, say, you know, 30 feet wide, maybe 90 feet deep. Um, uh, you know, their little storeroom in the back. Most of the stock is up front. Shelving looks very much the same. You know, if you look at the um, cover picture on the book, you know, it's kind of a typical um, independent slash or chain store um, in that time period. Um, chains are going to develop alongside of the independents a little more organization um, with regard to their stores over time. And so one of the things in particular that you see different, um, and again, is, is reflected on the cover picture, is um, obviously the canned goods, packaged goods revolution, when you get you know those kind of um, boxed items, canned items, then you can, and you start doing different types of displays with them. That's useful for um, show window storefronts to entice people in. There's a lot of focus on abundance, which again is a common kind of theme in 19th century consumer um, goods. Um, Jackson Lears obviously writes about that to a great extent. Um, and, you know, and so the interiors start to shift subtly. Um, you know, it, it is interesting, you know, again, I use the cover photo in particular because it, it has a massive cash register in the front, um, which I enjoyed. Um, and But rows of canned goods behind the clerk who's there, kind of, you know, a hodgepodge of boxes up in the back, um, a couple of stools at the sales counter, which was not uncommon, again, in either chain store or independent. But the other thing I liked about the particular image there is, you know, it, there's mess there, too. It, it's not pristine. It's not clean. There's some dirt on the floor. There's some baskets kind of laying around. <laughs> 
that's not an uncommon thing. Again, you know, one of the things that chain stores will do um, in particular is to, you know, start to bring a little bit more order and uniformity, if you will, standardization to the chain um, outlets, as you might imagine. And so, you know, they come up with more standardized, like kind of floor plans, you know, how a store should be laid out, the shelf um, configurations and the like. The storefronts as well uh, among chain stores will become more uniform so that you could recognize, you know, a chain uh, outlet more easily than, you know, an independent grocer. Those are some of the changes that you see happening um, in those stores. And so, you know, I think what's interesting is over time, uh, one of the things I also write about is that, the, you know, the independents realize, well, we got to do something too. And so, you know, you see more of them starting to become uh, more focused on cleanliness and cleaning up and putting things in order. Um, not all of them are going to do that as well. And I know you had another question there at the end, and I, and I can't, can you refresh my memory? Yes. Um, so it was about how um, kind of the visual, which you talked a little bit about um, how, you know, inventories changed to how um, grocers started to introduce new products and, you know, and how all the wallpaper. wallpaper <laughs> I- that was it. The wallpaper. Thank you. Because um, wallpaper is fantastic. So uh, I, write in, yeah, I write in my book about I was, again, this is one of those kind of like happy surprises research, you know, um, it was interesting to me that there were a lot of wallpaper suppliers that were supplying directly to retail. Now you might imagine that as part of, you know, fancy department store decor, like, you know, we, we, um, we've all probably read about the consumption palaces of the 1890s and, you know, how elaborate they are and fancy, but, you know, I came across a couple of letters and one that I use in, in the book about um, a grocer who, you know, wrote into the trade journal and was like, you know, I want to put up some of that fancy um, wallpaper that it looks like it came from China, you know? So he's like, he's like developing this kind of impression of his business that he wants to impart on his customers when they first enter, which again, you know, completely belies the whole like dirty, messy, you know, disorganized, I don't care what my business looks like kind of concept. Um, but I just thought it was fascinating that, you know, and, and, and the response that the trade journal gave was, you know, oh, yeah, you can, you know, you can visit such and such a retailer, one of many who cater, you know, to you know, grocers and other retailers of fancy wallpapers. I'm like, OK, that's interesting. Um, and so, you know, but then, and then you become very, you know, um, curious as to I wonder what that looked like, you know, <laughs> like. What, how did it fit in with the rest of the decor? And what was, you know, what was he going for there? It was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was really great. I really um, wish there was a history of world, I mean, a business history of wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that we still use it, you know, use it more. I don't, I don't oh, know why we don't. Back. It's yeah, it's coming, coming back. back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the last chapter of your book, um, you talk about avoiding the middleman. Uh, is this um, 
Can you talk a little bit more about how this process uh, came into the, you know, into kind of uh, the history of establishing grocery stores and and this kind of paradox between, you know, all these agreements, right? Gentleman agreements. It's all about agreements. It's all about personal relationships, but it's also they all use the terms free enterprise. Yeah, regulate, but free enterprise always. It's like, okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how that plays into, into kind of the last part of your, of your book? Yeah, it's free as long as it's advantaging you, you know. <laughs> we love free enterprise as long as it swings to our favor. The minute it doesn't, well, then wait, what happened to free enterprise? Um, exactly. Yeah, so, and yet again, here again, you know, um, so this, again, a happy coincidence, if you will, of the research process. I was at um, um, at Harvard uh, at the Baker Library, and they had a collection of the Boston Wholesale Grocers Association, the BWGA, and they had um, a ledger book um, detailing the minutes of their meetings. And in that were just these amazing things that I'm like, really? Who? Wow, who knew? It was fascinating to me. But they were writing about, and you mentioned these agreements. And so um, in, in the BWGA, they're kind of a leader in this regard um, in this time period, the 1880s, 1870s, 80s. Um, and so what the wholesale grocers, you know, everybody, you know, among the wholesale grocers in general, like to believe that the line between, you know, uh, the, the, the manufacturers, the wholesalers and the retailers, those were sacred boundaries that shouldn't be crossed. And so if retailers needed goods, well, then they should be coming to the wholesalers, the wholesalers then, of course, will require those goods from the manufacturers. Um, but by the 1880s, uh, in, in, you know, heading into the 1890s, more and more the retailers were getting annoyed, if you will, with the, the kind of the control that wholesale distributors uh, in the grocery industry were taking with regard to the movement of goods. And by that, I mean, um, as an example, the Boston Wholesalers Grocers Association had several um, agreements, if you will, with uh, prominent manufacturers. And these agreements would say, look, we'll distribute your goods. Lever Brothers Soap is an example. Quaker Oats, another one of those examples. We'll distribute your goods to our retail clients, but we want a concession on the price because we're going to buy large quantities. And then we'll pocket that um, concession distributed among our other our wholesaler members, if you will. And this will be an advantageous relationship between the manufacturers and the wholesalers. Well, as you can imagine, they're they're passing along, you know, um, the goods to the retailers with with naturally, uh, you know, a, a cost added to that. The retailers um, start to wonder why do we need wholesalers? Um, they're just costing us money. They're controlling the prices of the goods. And that's another major problem that the retailers are facing is the wholesaler control on prices. Um, they're putting, the wholesalers are putting in mandates that you can't, you know, retail this product um, for less than X dollars or X pennies, whatever. And manufacturers are doing the same. 
this is where we get manufactured suggested retail price from. But the retailers start to think, wait a minute, do we really need the wholesalers? What if we as retailers in a community or, you know, in a town come together and buy equally large quantities directly from the manufacturers cut out that middleman. And, and, you know, and again, I'm explaining this and people are listening going, well, duh, um, because, you know, of course you're going to cut out the middleman. That's what happens, you know, um, and it's, you know, largely how business operates and distribution and, you know, in, in these days, but in the 1870s and eighties, that is a foreign concept in the grocery trade. Those are sacred lines that don't get crossed. Retailers should not be going directly to manufacturers. And so you get the development of what, of what are known as buyer syndicates um, or buying syndicates. And these are just groups of um, retailers who only come together for the purposes of buying large quantities directly from manufacturers to obtain you know, those quantity discounts. Well, and as you might imagine, the wholesalers are really not happy about um, because they see themselves being kind of pushed out of the field. But it's giving you here now in the 1870s and the 1880s, this is the precursor to what obviously A&P is going to take advantage of in the 19-teens and 20s. A&P will start, you know, doing their own wholesaling. They'll cut out, you know, having to deal directly with outsourcing wholesaling, et cetera. Um, and this is, of course, again, is where you're going to get these, you know, um, great, you know, kind of advantages that, you know, Walmart and others will take uh, to the bank. But these are small retail grocers in the 1870s who are just put up, you know, just had enough of being, you know, kind of the the end line of a very inflated process and decide to take you know, action on their own, and they come up with a creative solution, a new way, if you will, of getting around the wholesaler. And and so it's an interesting um, chapter in that regard, because you do see then these foundational elements that become the core, not just of the grocery trade, obviously, but many other businesses uh, and industries over time. Just to start wrapping up the interview, I wanted to talk about sources and primary documents and it, the wide range of primary documents in your book is fascinating. And you talked a little bit more about, you talked a little bit about it, um, you know, when you explained that it had, it's, it's actually difficult to, to study a small business. And, um, but one thing that I, you know, that I think is important to, to highlight is that, um, the complex ways historians uh, and others can look into economic life and business practices, as you say, um, without necessarily, you know, go for just economic indicators, right? Um, so your sources include trade journals, uh, photographic views, diaries, uh, stored ledgers, which you have mm-hmm. uh, mentioned newspapers, commercial records, uh, mm-hmm. city, city directories, which I'm very interested in. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how, you know, this wide range, but also how does the business historian put all this together? And <laughs> Yeah, and as I uh, pointed out earlier, in, in many ways, this is a book um, designed for the dissertation writer. In other words, it's a book designed for um, somebody who 
is not bogged down with teaching a lot of classes, administrative duties, et cetera, et cetera, because, um, you know, quite literally, I, I, I traveled to archives from Maine all the way through to Minnesota and, you know, BC and through the South, et cetera, to cobble this together. And part of the reason I did that was out of necessity, because as I pointed out before, it's not like you just go to um, an archive and you open the, the, the big book of grocers and, you know, there's everything for you. Um, so you have to do that kind of legwork and piece that together. The other reason I undertook that was, you know, my approach to writing this history, I wanted to emphasize the people. Um, and this is, you know, you pointed this out at, at the beginning of our conversation, you know, that very often business history is written in the absence of the people who run the businesses and who experience um, the changes. And, and so I wanted to emphasize how capitalism and these bigger forces that we often, again, as historians write about from above, we write about big banking, we write about, you know, big industry. I wanted to write this story as a reflection of how capitalism affects people on the ground. How does the small businessman see the effects of these big changes? How does the consumer experience the effect of those changes when they walk into the store? Because let's face it, in the 19th century, uh, you know, most of these people, in fact, I would argue 99% of Americans in the 19th century are not going to be wandering anywhere near um, Wall Street or those big enterprises, massive railroad organizations. They're going to experience capitalism in their backyard, um, in their corner shop. And so that's a big reason why I took the approach I did. And in order to make that story work, um, I did have to cobble together all of those sources. I did have to think about, you know, how do you get it to the, you know, the kind of the everyday personal level of a business operation using what's available? And so um, it was a real challenge. I will tell you the biggest challenge that I had actually came with that NCR ledger. And so this is a good example of how uh, a historian uses multiple sources to get to the story they want to tell. And so when I received that ledger, um, yeah, it had lots of great names in it. It had addresses of where those cash registers were being um, shipped to, and it had all kinds of wonderful details. The thing that was lacking in that register, however, um, of um, sales was what kind of business the people who were buying those registers operated. And since I was writing a book about small grocers, I needed to figure out who in that list of 3,000 purchasers was running a grocery business. And so, you know, off I go. And so I took the names that I had along with the cities in, in, um, in conjunction with that. And I started with the city directories for those particular towns. And fortunately, again, this is, you know, one of the benefits of um, having a lot of things online <laughs> these days. Uh, I could search a heck of a lot of um, city directories online for those individual names to try to find out what kind of business they were running. And I did find a lot of names that way. Then I also used the 
census records to try to find and also to verify in some cases, you know, is that guy really a grocer? Is he really running a saloon that's just kind of but so I use census um, records as well to find out the professions uh, as they reported them in um, the time period in which they were making that register sale. Uh, Search the newspapers as well. Um, to try to get additional um, information and to try to, you know, again, extract as many grocers and known grocers from that list of 3,000 names and uh, registered buyers as I could. And so, um, and then going from there, you know, I think one of the things I really enjoyed most about writing this book was hunting down those personal stories. In other words, you know, once I, I have somebody I want to write about um, and I know is going to, you know, have has a, an important piece of um, evidence for me to use in the story, then I go and I dig deeper. I do, you know, I went into um, the Google books, advanced search, because a lot of like 1870s and 80s books are digitized. And you can, you can, I found out like all kinds of interesting little tidbits about these people. Um just by doing a Google book search of those older books, you find out what clubs they belong to, you know, what, what kind of organizations, et cetera. It gave me a lot more information. Um, searching the newspapers, you know, um, Library of Congress had their um, uh, Chronicling America, very valuable source for historians of any time period, uh, found lots of great information um, at the local level about individuals and businesses. And, you know, all of these amazing sources, Ancestry is the one, you know, we, we were familiar with, I imagine, that has um, digitized a lot of city directories. They're searchable. I found a lot of those people through that as well. And so, you know, I think one of the joys that I had in this writing this book and putting it together was in tracking down those stories of putting together those resources. And, and I, and I'll just give a shout out and I'll give a credit to my dissertation advisor, Scott Sandage. It's, it's the way he writes uh, and puts together a book. I learned from the best. Uh, I learned that those personal stories matter uh, when we're talking about business, when we're talking about how business affects, not just in, in an economic sense, but in a social in a cultural sense and on an individual level. And so um, that was really one of the the kind of the great joys I had in writing this book. Uh, And I will just tack on the end of that. um, One of the other joys about writing this book was when you would encounter people who you didn't know until you told them what you were writing about. Almost everybody has a family member that was in the grocery business, had a small store, ran a small shop, grandmothers, uncles, cousins, everybody, it seems, had somebody who was familiar with the small grocery business. And so it was a delight to to hear their stories and to think about, you know, what it meant for their families and their individuals, um, if you will, to, to be in that trade, to work those businesses and the work that they put into it. And that factored into uh, my writing as well. And so uh, the sources were everything for me. And, and it was at times frustrating, but just, wow, what a, a delightful treasure hunt as well. I very much appreciate uh, all these comments. And I think, you know, this idea of, of focusing on the people and the experience of business is, is key. 
I also wanted to know um, if you are um, willing to say um, what is your current uh, research project? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, and so I will preface that by saying um, I've just start, uh, started the role as um, um, department chair. And so, you know, scholarship uh, tends to go out the window. But I am actually working on a project um, that has taken a, a little different tact, although there are similarities. Um, I'm currently working on um, uh, what is an article right at the moment uh, talking about the phonograph, um, you know, 1870. So I actually own a phonograph, um, use it in the classroom, have been fascinated by the phonograph for years. Um, but looking at the phonograph as an instrument that um, was used in a political context, in other words, um, you know, beginning in 1896 and through uh, 1912 and beyond, um, Uh, presidential candidates used the phonograph, recorded cylinders, uh, cylinder records of speeches and the like um, to be sold uh, by Thomas Edison's company, by other corporations um, as a way to for candidates to get their message out into the mainstream and also um, to kind of remedy a longstanding problem with presidential um, um, you know, campaigning. There was this kind of sense that a presidential candidate didn't campaign, you know, that looked, it was seedy to do that in the 19th century. But by the early 20th century, there was a necessity for it, um, although it was still looked down upon uh, as not Uh, not a, a thing a presidential candidate should do. And so uh, that's kind of what I'm working on. And so elements of business history in there, a little bit of political um, and the technology of the phonograph. And so not too far afield from my interests. Great. Well, I wish you the best on that project. Thanks. And thank you so much for being here with us today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. This is the Economic and Business History Channel on the New Books Network. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, a host on this channel. Thank you very much for listening.